0: Hi, it's Bill Harvey. Welcome to Harvey at the Undisclosed Location, a series of conversations with creative stakeholders. Today, our guest is Petra Hansen. Petra is a designer, musician, writer, and she's a podcaster. We're thrilled she's here to share her fascinating story with us. So, Petra Hansen. (laughs) William. Petra... uh, I'm going to throw out some identifiers and see if you uh, find them compelling or accurate. (laughs) You are a designer and uh, you're a writer, a storyteller, podcaster.
1: Yes, I would say all of those, all of the above is true.
0: And uh, you were a rock star in Japan. Indeed.
1: (laughs) Not too many people can claim that, but uh, (laughs) uh, we were nobodies. Who were literally, literally plucked out of nowhere and overnight became, you know, got a major record deal and became big in Japan, which is um, not only unusual; it was historical. Like no, that has never actually happened (laughs) in the history of rock and roll, Um, and and so that's part of the story that remains. you know, sort of under the rug. No one really knows that that's what was so unusual about our story is that because I was singing in Japanese and doing something that was incredibly original, um, we weren't just imports. We were like nobodies who were only known there. So that's.
0: And and that was in your early 20s?
1: Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to lie about my age. No, <laughs> no, no. I got discovered at 34. Mm-hmm. They didn't know that. Um, yeah it was a a a very um, late bloomer situation Um, you know I I came into music later in life and um, you know I was doing it just for fun and sometimes when you're doing it with that spirit and uh, that freshness and you're coming from another creative angle too I was coming from again visual design and and fashion um, and and music was just sort of an outlet for me and a place to express and play. I got to make costumes and create another identity and sing in another language because I was actually quite shy. So becoming a performer was, uh, was uh, something that surprised even me. Most of my 20s, I spent traveling. Uh, I've lived in Italy and France and um, had studies both, Um, You know, French and Italian, and so Japan just seemed to be the next level. And I will say that growing up in New York helped me with this worldly outlook. You know, I was not uh, some kind of trust funder who could just sort of dance around the globe and and um, live life wherever I wanted, wherever I pleased. I actually got really interested in cultures early on uh, because New York City is so worldly, and um, I felt like that there was so much more that I wanted to see of the world because I had these glimpses from knowing people and and seeing the, all the cultures that came here to um, be a part of New York became a part of me, my vision for how I wanted to live my life. As opposed to if you grow up somewhere in a smaller town in America and you dream of going to New York. Mm-hmm. I had to dream outside of New York. And I went to Tokyo i I lived in Tokyo uh, early on I taught English there and um, I did some modeling and the things that quirky 21 year olds do when they go to live in a foreign country but I had two visas uh, in Japan and I stayed there I had my um, first I lived with a family and I studied Japanese in a school and um, taught English as well because that's always popular. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was the first place I ever lived as a, um, as an adult on my own in the world. And so that was very formative for me, uh, not the easiest place to go. And I did stand out a lot as a six foot blonde with, uh, uh I just, <laughs> but strangely just felt so, uh, taken with the culture. It was a wonderful place for me. To learn um, about another side of life, I guess I brought that experience with me into my art. It it continued to be an influence.
0: Uh, I didn't uh, mention visual art.
1: I did study visual art in college. That was my major. I did painting and photography, um, and I went. um, You know, I I I guess I had a, a tiny tiny bit of success um I had a grant to uh paint in France but that was based on my photography from Japan so yeah one thing led to another and I actually kept trying in that world for the first for my early 20s you know as I would travel around and be this sort of expat artist or call myself that and I was also involved in modeling then so that got me um reasons to be in France, for example, in and Paris and, and all that. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I guess I, I, I was introduced to the world of maybe, you know, fashion design through modeling. At hmm. first, I would meet other designers and go like, well, I'd rather be doing that. I just wasn't <laughs> that into it. So I didn't get very far. Um, and um, of course, I will, as a feminist, bring up that it was very much, I uh, have lots of me Too stories from that chapter in my life. And it was disturbing. And um, I um, thankfully said, uh, no thanks, and um, as a result, got nowhere. Hmm. So um, uh, I had difficulty in the art world for similar reasons. Um, I, I realized I did not want to go down certain paths. And um, I saw doors open for other people um, that... Um, at least to me, it seemed like a world of connections mm-hmm. and um, not about the substance of the art. And I also learned later on that that I didn't want to express myself visually, that it wasn't satisfying for me. Later on with my band, with my music, I could express myself and be free and, and do what I wanted. Uh, so that became my artistic form of choice for at least nine years of my life. And then... Uh, design became very satisfying for me because I'm actually a designer mm-hmm. I'm actually a problem solver <laughs> So mm-hmm. I, um, I went back to school so I did it very quickly while I was working um, I did it in a, a two-year program in a year mm. which was unheard of and I immediately fell in love with knitwear mm-hmm. while I was there because it was the closest thing to painting with um, with yarn and with color, I realized that I wanted to not only could I incorporate um, the kind of painter that I was and the kind of visual artist I was, I could turn it into a product um, and 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 make the full thing, make the fabric, and so knitwear became my thing. And mm-hmm. it was a wonderful choice for me because uh, it's kind of also a nerdy little niche space in the fashion world, and. Um, all the people I ever worked with were from, were from England because mm-hmm. that's a like huge knitting mm-hmm. culture. And um, it just, where I also went to study in, and, and work with Julian McDonald, who is, you know, huge rock star at the time um, and uh, and still is. He, he worked for, or er, he designed for Givenchy and mm-hmm. uh, Chanel. He did all the knits. And so um, I, really, I, I really just was very passionate about that specific arena of of the fashion world, um, so I did. So
0: that's knitwear design is pretty technical. It's super techy. It, you have to know There's how Mac. the machines work. <laughs> yeah. You have to know what kind of machines. Yes. You have to know all yarn um, gauges and
1: uh, needle sizes. All of that. Yeah, it, it it was really technical. But I found that um, I learned it. You know, I just I I, I just devoured it actually I loved it my brain loved it my brain thinks in patterns to me I always felt like there was a parallel once I got into music with the patterns that I was creating visually with the patterns that I heard in pop music
0: I read an article recently that related knit knitwear and looms to the rise of digital culture
1: oh it's the original computer Mm -hmm. And um, interesting, you should ask, because that's, uh, it kind of helped me in my, this latest transition, which was merging into technology. I'm not a technologist, however, uh, I have been able to speak code. It, knitting is the original code. It's zeros and ones. It's knit and purl. You have two stitches. With those two stitches, you can uh, create an infinite amount of of. of visual design possibilities and patterns and languages. It's a language. They used to use it. I mean, there've, there've, there've been um, codes that have been knit in sweaters in the past. I mean, it's a fascinating, if you dig back into the, the origins of, of uh, you know, knitting, you know, there's the, the, the physical need of having, needing a warm sweater and, and it, it's, it's, an, it's a wonderful structure. Loops, you know, they go on forever. Uh, it's different from weaving. It stretches, it moves, and, uh, you know, but in terms of, like, having the code side, I think even Norwegian fishermen sweaters were all unique, and that was one way where, th- you know, you could you would write in, like, family crests and codes and different, um, again, uh, ways of identifying these fishermen who would go out to sea, and, you know, they would be wearing their code.
0: So really, from... Your knitwear, you're in this kind of making tech packs for knitwear and stuff, right?
1: It's exactly what I did for many years. Mm -hmm. You know, I got really quick at them too. Used to just fire them off. And in the beginning, we do everything by hand. Um, I've never been so happy after struggling as a visual artist all through my 20s, you know, taking waitressing jobs or bartending, whatever I could do to just sort of keep myself going as a visual artist. And suddenly there was this major company that would pay me to draw.
0: <laughs> that was so exciting. <laughs> and I sat
1: and I drew sweaters and I drew designs and I drew the patterns of, of, you know, it was just, it was really, really liberating and joyful in, in those early years. Um, and then everything switched to the computer because mm-hmm. I was there for that transition. You know, good old Gen Xers. We had to do it all. So I started out, you know, we would fax our um, drawings and our, and my tech packs. Um, this is when I worked for Donna Karen way back in the day. Uh, and, and we'd fax them to um, Asia where, where the factories were. And, 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 and then two weeks later, boom, Sample. our sweater would come back. <laughs> Lots of samples. Um, then when it started to transition into uh, computer-driven designs, uh, it was I fought it. I fought it as long as I could. I, I I insisted that you know drawings. I can't think when I create on the computer. I need to ske- I need to. It's there's something in the wiring of of having been an artist all my life that I um, I need to have. I need to sketch by hand, and I probably always will. Although the tools now are awesome, yeah. and I do love them, and they do get you to think differently. So I am I am not a, a, a purist. I, I love what technology has brought to the table, but I'm happy I know the old way.
0: Well, the machines have changed too, right? I mean, the, the old knit machines were not digital.
1: They weren't digital, that's right. Yeah, I saw that change, and now they have so many capabilities. They can do seamless. I mean, they have been able to do seamless for a long time, you know, tubes, everything is is. Um, but to be honest, I'm pretty sure a lot of it's still done in, and, and you know, it's still the same basic kind of machines. I have one. I bought one to really understand and learn it. It's an it's an old uh, Japanese hand knitting, you know, machine. Yeah, you slide it back and forth in the needles, and I. Um, you know studied it for years Yeah, it basically looks like a keyboard it's mm-hmm. about the same size and um, you know that's how I learned to uh, I, I would use it when you, every time you want to develop a new um, uh, st- knit structure you would I would just sit there and play with it like it's a, a keyboard you know noodle around hand and, and make something totally original and then send that to the factory because the factories would just imitate it um, so it hasn't changed that much Maybe now those same machines are run by computers, and there is an interesting company that's coming out with one of those hand uh, sort of machines, and their their vision is to is to make it so that you can, you know, that it's like Kinkos, you can walk in with a design, anyone can, and print out a sweater. It's like a pr- digital printer mm-hmm. that works for knitting, but it's it's a long way from being done. It's a really cool company called Knitterade.
0: Hmm.
1: As a knitwear designer. Um, I learned how hard it is to do your own thing, which is one reason why I never did my own line. You have to have so many, your minimums, if you want to make any product. So, if, you know, if, unless I would sit there and knit it at home and make a one-by-one, one, it was very hard to get anything into production. So now, it's they're making that part easier, which, you know, for better or worse, yes, it it's, uh, does free up um, the marketplace for designers. For production,
0: and then uh, you decided to be a, a rock star.
1: <laughs> no, I didn't decide to be a rock star. <laughs> I never thought I was going to be a rock star. It was never <laughs> on my uh, plan. I mean, that was just one of those surprises in life. I'm going to be very open about this. Fashion was a mean industry, and probably still is. But I don't. I've 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 sidestepped and don't interact much anymore but I had a really rough time. There was a lot of hazing. There was a lot of competition. There was a lot of stealing of other designers' work and credit for it. Um, And uh, I didn't do well in that environment. It was not a good place for me to thrive. And I needed some place to where I could um, feel creative and free. And also let out some of that frustration because I was unhappy with my, it, it, as happy as I was doing what I did, I loved the work. And I was, you know, getting, you know, honing my skills and, and becoming, um, becoming a designer was, it was just sort of a painful process because of the other stuff that was going on around it. Um, and it didn't seem to change company to company you know I moved around a lot different jobs until I found my home at uh early early Oscar de la Renta it was great mm-hmm. I found a good director he nurtured me and and that was great but before that happened uh I started the band like we we were doing music because we needed to something in our soul needed to be there doing it and and uh Most of us were in our 30s, so it's like you're past that dreamer phase that you're ever going to make it. At least I was never under any illusions. (laughs) We did 60s pop music, and then to sing it in Japanese and and go with the sort of Japanese theme was, um, well, nobody was doing it. It was random, but... No one had seen a six-foot blonde pop out on stage and go, you know, Konnichiwa, ka? You know, it was funny. <laughs> that was Kiku Kimono Lisa, and uh, she she still thrives in me somewhere. Um, and and uh, yeah, I created the whole character. I did the I had the facility and the understanding of costume design because I was a designer. So I just went to town. Japan was good to us for the most part, and they kept their word. And um, we had a really good run. Mm-hmm. It was short, but it was, it was as good as it gets as far as the quality and the level and, you know, the trips to Japan. They wanted us to be this sort of wacky New York uh, hipsters or singing in Japanese. And, and it was something that hadn't happened before. It was funny. We wrote really funny songs. And a lot of it came from a place of, of um, you know, wanting to inspire young women in Japan, because I know how hard their life was when I'd lived there. And, you know, so there was kind of this like subversive feminist quality to the music that we were writing Um, that I don't even sure how aware I was at the time. In reflection, I realized like, oh, that's what I was writing that song about. So what we did then wouldn't be acceptable today. Um, because of cultural appropriation right. and mm-hmm. all that stuff, but if you if you understand that I actually lived in Japan and then I actually sing in Japanese, and this is coming from a place of of, tr- of real heart and authenticity, in um, it wasn't it looked like kitschy stuff that we were doing on the outside, but it was so much deeper than um, what has been represented prior in Asian culture in America, as as Americans interpret Asian culture, mm-hmm. um, and particularly Japanese culture. So it was so real. I mean, even in, in behind the studio or whatever, when, when we'd be recording, uh, very often my A&R person would go, oh no, you sound like a Japanese woman. You sound totally Japanese. Mm-hmm. And so that made me feel really great. Mm-hmm. And it was you know, I know that what I was doing meant the message I was trying to bring to these young women was about, hey, you can do anything and 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 it resonated again, you know they these they they wanted they want to hear that, even if it's delivered from a woman who looked like an amazonian American who wasn't a Japanese woman, it's still. Here I was singing in their language, and I think that makes a difference. We were very popular. We had uh, over um, five hundred thousand illegal downloads. To, I mean, our songs were everywhere. We uh, people were singing our songs in the streets, and 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 you know, we like I said, you know, the crowds were were really they were with us. We had a, we had a following.
0: Then there's a, then there's the next chapter.
1: The fall of the band was a heavy hard fall for me. It was tough because I didn't want to stop playing music. And yet, uh, right around the time of the um, you know, the economic downturn in our country was the time when we realized like, oh yeah, the Sony contract's up, they're not renewing it. Um, how do we keep, where do I go from here? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a tricky time in life. I was turning 40. Um, I had had this great run of just so much creative freedom and um, rock stardom, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I still was doing my design work during the day. I mean, I kept that career going. I freelanced more or less, but I still was able to be like sort of a rock star in that, in my knit world. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I really, you know, I just uh, felt like I was on top. And uh, when both the mm-hmm. fashion industry ended and the music industry was ending and um, I found myself in the position of having to start over, um, it was really hard. Mm-hmm. And I know that I'm not alone. So I, I feel no shame in, in talking about this chapter of my life, at least so other people can know that, hey, <laughs> you know, it, it was a thing. Um, a lot of creatives were going through it at the time. And, um um, so it was it was sort of a forced uh, ending that made me reflect and um, and, and uh, take a step back at what I was doing. Like, hey, would you have been able to continue uh, singing in Japanese and dressing up in wigs and being silly for another decade? You know probably not. And I chose not to push it. To just sort of let it, let it go and, um, and explore other realms, um, other arenas of expression. Um, one of my favorite quotes that I lived by then and now was by Iggy Pop, which says that every seven years you should change your artistic um, choice, your medium, mm-hmm. because then you can go to it and from a fresh place um and so i did that i dropped music um i continued doing a little bit of freelance design just because i had to to pay my rent but um i slowed down on that too realizing that i needed to try something new and that new thing became storytelling and writing so i i just started to learn those two crafts as as a way of um i think it was my a uh, uh, reaction to maybe all the dressing up and the artifice mm-hmm. and the uh, the fast a-list i mean okay whatever it wasn't an a-list life but i i i I'm, i say a-list because it leads to where i'm going with b-lists um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, uh, um the the youth was over you all of that um the door was closing or had closed and it was time to figure out another area of expression and and do it in an authentic way from a place of authenticity. I think if you have been sort of living as an extrovert um, out there in the open, you know I was always on on, I knew how to turn it on I knew how to but um, parts of my interior um, being were just sort of eroding mm-hmm. And um, so I think that's why the fall was hard, because I realized, oh, I had I had I had lost chunks of myself and and what I what really matters and what's important in life. You know, just that that uh, I think even a little bit of fame can do that to you. And uh, and so it was good. It was a good time to just sort of turn inward um, I went to the. I started going to the Moth live storytelling shows, and I just went. I went. I just would love it. I would bathe in these stories that other people told me, of their lives, and how how powerful it was to connect through stories. And I realized I had a story to tell. I just mm-hmm. didn't know how to tell it. Mm. I had to learn from like you know baby blocks of of writing. I didn't consider myself a writer. I didn't have the confidence. Um, but I had to build it.
0: You created a cultural identifier um, that you call the B Sider.
1: What I'm trying to do with the B Sider is is um and you know, I mean follow your dreams. Mm-hmm. It's basically if you boil that messaging down, which is a not an original thing to say, um but what I'm trying to do with a B-sider and my experience with music and the disappearance of vinyl in our lives or the reappearance of it, whatever, as retro, you know, using that as a metaphor. Um, but going deeper into the real meaning of, um, you know, what following your authenticity, we are authentic, you know, going against the grain of, of uh, our beings we don't really have a choice at a certain age, at a certain point you're like, no, I'm not doing that anymore I'm not and, and so um, what I'm trying to do what I realized I've done for my own life and I see that it resonates with other people is, is, is to um, amplify that message um, in a way that people can absorb it and, and, and really make it their own part of their own journey and their own story
0: to me it speaks to um, something I've experienced which is the pressure to conform increases with age yeah people want you to get in the box
1: mm-hmm. they do
0: and for women it's I think even more um, intense than
1: it is for women uh like me I in, in some sense, you know, I mean, I'm, I never married, I don't have any children. Um, some of that's by choice, some of it's just circumstance. And I'm really happy where I am right now. So this comes from zero place of, of um, shame or regret. Uh, but I also realize I'm, a, I'm actually in a position of power right now because of the freedom that I have outside the box, living outside the box. No one can really figure me out. They can't pinpoint me. I'm not any... I don't check off anything. Um, and why is that? Well, I'm... You have to realize the context. I am from the first generation of women that didn't have to get married, that didn't have to... You know, I mean, that's, that's a fact. You know, women's lib didn't happen that long ago. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, yes, I was raised by, you know, my single mom, and, and you know, and she... Uh, but she married three times. So, oh, wow. you know, it's like mm-hmm. there was there's still <laughs> this like you must be attached to a man <laughs> to sort of have your identity and to be OK mm-hmm. to be considered not suspect. And I'm still sus- considered suspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my status doesn't really have a name. Um, and 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 so I think um, in some ways. Living as i am as a free wo- as an artist or whatever it it was a shock to me actually to realize that there even was a box no i'm it's a message that i'm i'm trying to speak to people who maybe feel outside and are okay with it and some people also don't even realize there's a box and that's a problem too
0: well I, you you started to say a free woman and um that's yeah. a very threatening position in a patriarchal society right? You no know,
1: i didn't realize how threatening i was just trying to be me mm-hmm. just trying to be a person you know yeah it's amazing how threatening that is i hope that it won't stay like that for long
0: and many people aren't even aware of the pressures and t- to conform that they are internalizing
1: exactly It's there's a there's a you know complicit bias Mm, that's out there in the ether that um you absorb it's a it's a really really important and and complicit bias is very insidious um and it's very prevalent um in our culture um where there's just this acceptance and well that's the way it is and um a denial of uh, which I've also come up against, you know, n- not everybody agrees with the b sider thank you for for being a cheerleader, but I do have f- pushback from people who are,, um, I mean, I think the message I've kept it so, you know open and and whatnot. But there are a lot of people that say,'m, um, oh, you're so negative. Well, it's not like that. Life is so easy to f- to be, you know, so you're you're so you're not married or so you're not this and that, you're free. You can do whatever you want. And it's like, no, actually, there are there's a lot of negative messaging there that that I'm experiencing and you don't know that
0: yeah and you're, you're it's not just for a single woman a it's free woman it's it's for any you know anybody who's not directly within the binary Thank gender you. construction or doesn't fully buy or questions of patriarchy
1: or is just trying to live outside the box creative lifestyles have a hard time we are already marginalized mm-hmm. And, and that, and there isn't really, you know, a, a direct, linear life path for us. But I'm so happy that you bring up that the B-sider, connect, the messaging connects with um, not just never married women with who don't have, don't go the kid route or whatever. It's, it's a message of non-conforming because ultimately that's what I'm hoping for is that that it's, you know, this idea of B-side songs being, you know, what didn't make it into the marketplace. They didn't, it wasn't considered cool enough or mm-hmm. not gonna sell enough numbers. And mainstream is just, it's not where it's at for me. <laughs> I made the hits for the record label. And now I get, to, you know, I mean, that was, that was essentially what B-side songs were all about. You know, it's where the artists got to experiment and, and, and explore and grow as artists. I'm constantly telling people like, Learn the ukulele. You never had an instrument? Start with the ukulele. I did it. And, you know, just stuff that's that, that you never, they never think of doing. And you just give them permission. And it's so liberating.
0: Well, that's what I think you're hopefully doing with B-siders. Giving permission to people who yeah. aren't aware that they're denying themselves in some way.
1: Yeah. And calling bullshit on all that that you've just mentioned, you know, about... They're uh, they're just being uh, an expiration date. To I mean, artists really don't have an expiration date. As long as you're living and you're pushing forth and 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 struggling and doing and I you know I mean struggling in the sense that are you know you're trying to to get there to get closer to you know your vision, honing what it is that you're trying to express. That's very valid and it is a value uh, that gets lost
0: I really want to ask what's inspiring now for you
1: I am really excited right now um about well live storytelling and I I guess storytelling and working with every way that that can get that is that a simple story whether it's told in one minute or in a two-hour movie um how it gets translated and well told I think podcasting is where it's at. I just am really, really excited and inspired by that space right now, particularly because it is a, um, I see we are in this age of, it hasn't really taken off in, I mean, there's a million podcasts. Of course, there's tons of them, but they're all so completely unique and, and it hasn't been, um, taken over by corporate sponsorship or or anything. I, and and that's a fun time to be alive for creative exploration. You know, it's it's exciting that people can say what they want and speak from their mind, and not feel like they've got a gazillion sponsors that they've got to mention and all that sort of stuff. I mean, some of the hot ones have to that to deal with, but for the most part, you can dig around. To me, we're living in the jazz age of po- of of podcasting. You know, it's it's where. Um, where there's a lot of riffing going on on interesting themes and topics, uh, and I am endlessly going through and trying to find new ones to to. Um, I think I think listening right now uh, to first of all you get you have this experience that is really cool. Uh, I I don't know for some reason it's just different from a radio talk show or anything. It feels more intimate and more authentic. And, you know, you can listen in your car. You can listen. while It makes me like doing my laundry because mm-hmm. I just put on my favorite podcast something that I'm looking f- forward to the next one. I'm pretty addicted right now, but inspired. It's a good. There could be worse things to be addicted to at this point. <laughs> we're all sitting around a little fire somewhere. <laughs> and we're telling a story or we're writing a song or we're doing something that um, we hope will connect i i can't, I can't take that out of the equation because i I do it for myself to a certain but the reward is in the connection. the reward is not in the money the reward is not in it is in the genuine someone really gets this, and that's the kind of audience I want. I just want them to get it
0: That's incredible. I think that's a great place to stop. <laughs> That's well this has been
1: really cool. I love where we've gone and woven in and out of. I love the loops.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The knits and the pearls.
1: The knits and the pearls. We got some pearls.
0: I definitely left some pearls.
1: (laughs) Excellent. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Petra. My pleasure. Thank you, Petra. That was great. Check out Petra's B-Sider project at thebeesider.com And that's it for today's Harvey at the Undisclosed Location with our guest, Petra Hansen. Thanks for listening. I've got some great guests lined up. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and other podcast platforms. And we'll catch up with you guys later.